That's some, some good music. We believe at Sedaris that conversation is worship, so thanks for sharing yourself with someone else, bringing them into your world, sharing your heart. Keep that up. Hopefully you met somebody new, and over time that'll be a new friend, a new family member. So my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Um, one of the things Ryan um, didn't mention is you could take this and you could give it to somebody you know, somebody you love, somebody that you cross paths with. Keep it in your purse or carry all if you're a male. And then you see somebody, you might give it to them. Somebody, your favorite uh, checkout person at the grocery store or favorite barista or a coworker, and uh, say, hey, if you're interested, no worries if not, but just wanted to give you this. So this can be a really fun time this year. Uh, I know a lot of people, you know, last year, pretty much all of us, including us, did some sort of virtual Christmas Eve, and, and so there may be some sort of desire, even if they're not normal churchgoers, to come to a Christmas Eve service, and that's fantastic. So just be bold, be brave, hand this to somebody. The worst thing that could happen is they don't recycle, and then you feel bad about it. It's literally the worst thing that could possibly, nothing else bad could happen. So... I'm so excited about Christmas Eve. Really excited. So, all right. Are you guys ready for a little time of teaching? Let's go ahead and pray and ask God to be here with us. So, Father God, we thank you for this opportunity, this space, this time to come together and teach from your word to learn a little bit more about who you are, about who we are, and about what our purpose is in the world. So, um, at this time of year where there's so much familiar, so many feelings, so many old and new, good and bad, uh, we pray that you'd give us some insight, some clarity about what we might do to be living into our purpose in this season as we study Advent and study the person of Jesus. I just pray that you'd give me wisdom, God, that anything that's from you would sit and stir in our hearts that our affections might be drawn upward towards Christ, our King, anything that's not of you, that it might go in one ear and out the other. So we thank you for this community, this opportunity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I don't know if this uh, is a little boomy here for me. I don't know if it is for you guys out there, but uh, maybe, maybe grab that. Turn down the boom for a sec. So... All right, so we're in this little mini Advent series uh, that's slightly different than we've done in years past. It's not sort of the traditional step through of hope, joy, love, peace, like we normally do, but it's still Advent. We're still talking about the coming of Jesus, um, the first coming, which we celebrate, or celebrate what happened 2,000 years ago, and then the second coming, the promise of Scripture that Jesus is coming back again. And so uh, that's why we call it Advent. Advent just means the coming and so we're studying that. Um, we're studying it through asking the question, why do I love Christmas? So I don't know if you've thought of that question or asked that question at a deeper level. I think we always have some type of sort of gut reaction when we, when we ask that question of why do I love Christmas? Now you guys are going to love this. I've, I've somehow misplaced the first page of my notes, so... <laughs> This is great. That's why I keep, why does he keep, is this a nervous habit? A little bit, but then it's also, I've lost the first page. So, got to go by memory. Um, 
I can do it. So why, why do I love Christmas? I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking about um, just the feelings that you get, sort of the anticipation that you get, um, kind of the nervous excitement that you get. Like, what is that? Like, where does that come from? Like, is it tied together by anything, or is it just sort of a product of, of all the stimulation, or somebody just tricked me into getting excited or anticipate? Like, where is that coming from? Or is it coming from some deeper well that once I recognize what it is, it makes sense of all the other accoutrement of the Christmas season? I think I've got the answer. <laughs> so today, we're actually going to be talking about why do I love Christmas, and I've re- I figured it out. It's the royalness of Christmas. I made up that word. It's the royalness. So, like, there's something royal about Christmas. And, and, and you, say, you say to me, Dave, but you're an American. <laughs> like, no taxation without representation, you know? Liberty or death. These are things that the founders of America said as we left the royal family of England. Well, turns out we're still obsessed with the royal family. Even though we're Americans and we, we think we don't, don't need a king, to be honest, we're still obsessed with the king and the royal family, and particularly in this country, of the British royal family. How do I know this? Raise your hand if you've watched the Netflix series, The Crown. Raise your hand. Be honest. Even one episode. You don't have to watch the whole thing. There you go. You're obsessed <laughs> with kingship and queenship and royalness. You're obsessed with it. In fact, you're not the only one. In 2021, The Crown swept, for the first time ever, all television dramas at the Emmys. The 2020 Emmys. They swept all seven categories of best TV drama. Wow. Really well-made show, of course. But also, I mean, Queen Elizabeth's not that exciting. Like, what is it? <laughs> like, like, there's been more exciting queens and kings over the years. Why do we love, I think, I think we're drawn to it. So why are we drawn to it? It's just sort of been programmed into us by years and years of monarchs who wanted to make themselves more important than they are? Or is there something even pre-programmed before that to give us this desire for a king? This desire for someone to be over us, but for us. Interesting question. I want you to turn with me to Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you can pull it out. If you don't, there should be a black one like this in the seat back in front of you. So, 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you do grab the Pew Bible in front of you, that's going to be on page 238. You could also Google 1 Samuel 8, and you can follow along with me as I read this. You may or may not know this interesting part of the history of God's people. So the Old Testament primarily recounts this particular group of people that God says that he chose in order that he might bring blessing and salvation to the whole world. And that's the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And the 12 tribes of, of uh, Jacob, who became, God changed his name, to Israel. And they had been in slavery in Egypt. We preached a whole series last, uh, over this last year on the book of Exodus, which is all about God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. And then they wander for a bit. Uh, and then they finally come into the promised land of God. And over time, they had a series of rulers. It was a, it was a bit more 
uh, maybe like an American form of uh, government. You sort of try to pick the best people that might be what they call judges and rule over the land, but not a king. Why not a king? Because God was the king. And he had his representatives, the judges, to rule over. But they didn't need a king because God was the king. And so at any given time, there were multiple judges. So it was a bit like American democracy. Except there was a king. And the king was God. Now that wasn't going great. Brokenness, pain, sin still marred the land. And so the people began to get a little unruly. They were a little frustrated. They thought, can't we do better than this? Well, let's read what happened. At that time, there was a judge named Samuel, who was a prophet and a judge. In chapter 8, verse 1 of 1 Samuel says this. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second was um, Abijah. They were judges at Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his way. Samuel was a very righteous man. God would have said, well done to Samuel, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned towards dishonest prophet. They took bribes, perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. All the other nations, they have kings. Why don't we have one? Appoint one. We could fix all of our problems if we just had a king. Verse 6. When they said, well, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand, and he considered it wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that you have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. So you want a king like the other kings? God says, tell them how those other kings operate. So Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of any king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to use in his chariots and on his horses and running in front of his chariots. They'll send them out into war and they'll die. Dying for the king's concerns. He can appoint them for use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, or make his weapons of war and the equipment of his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers and cooks and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, and your donkeys, and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flock, and you yourselves can become his servants. And when the day comes, you will cry out, because the king you've chosen for yourselves but the Lord won't answer you on that day. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated to them, them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, 
each of you go back to your city. And he does. He ends up giving them a king. God ends up giving them what they want. They get the king that they've always wanted. And it's fascinating. God knows he's the true king. I mean, are you catching the narrative? God's saying, they have a king. (laughs) They just don't treat me like king. I give them everything, but a human king will take everything. You see that? He's like, I'm the king. They have a king. They just don't recognize it. They don't worship me as the king. They don't bow before me as the king. They don't thank me as their good king. They have a king. But the people want what? They want a king like everybody else has. They compare their king. What if we had a king like that? They just miss it. They, 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 they trade God as king for human as king. And it doesn't go well for them. If you read through from 1 Samuel on through the rest of the Old Testament, what is it? You get a really bad king at first. Then you get King David, who is the king from which Jesus, from his lineage, Jesus comes. And he's, he's okay. <laughs> okay, so okay is about as good as you can say about David. Now, he seems great compared to other human kings, but if you read his story, he's not so great. He does exactly... Even the best king that we have recorded for us does the exact same God said. He'll take other people's wives. He'll send those people's wives out to war that they might die. It's not good, even for the best king. And then after King David, you start to get a slow but steady decline and de-evolution of kingship in Israel. And it gets really bad. Eventually, they get conquered. They get deported. It's not good. And God told them this. When you trade me as king for a mere human as king, it's not going to go well. But I'll give you over. I'll give you up to your distorted desires. Because if I don't, you'll never understand the right desire for me to be your king. God lets us do that. He, let, he gives us over to distorted desires so that we might see that it's bankrupt and hopefully turn back to him. See it right here with the idea of kingship. So actually, I'd like to say, it is not a surprise (laughs) that we have this weird desire for kingship, that we have this weird desire to know about royal families and to know about royalness. It's actually planted there by God in our creation because we were meant to have a king. God was meant to be that king. You tracking? Okay. So, Imagine now that you've, you've known about 1 Samuel 8, that God said this would happen, then you've watched and studied the history of Israel, and you've seen what actually happens, and you're desiring God to be king again, or at least somebody that's actually like God to be king again. That was the hope, that was the desire of the people of Israel. And it came, and it went. Maybe this king will be it. Nope, they fell short. Maybe this king will be it. Nope, it fell short. On and on and on. Then what you have is you have the Greeks conquering them. Alexander the Great conquers Israel and owns the land. And then the Romans come in and and suppress and oppress them and give them puppet kings. And you get to this time of the New Testament when there is sort of a Jewish puppet king, Herod the Great. He eventually gives his throne, splits it between his three sons. But it's really Rome that is king over the land. 
And you get this story. So flip over now to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life, written and constructed based on eyewitness, first-hand accounts of those who were his first disciples. And if you've got the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 856, if you've got one of these black Bibles. And so hundreds of years have now gone by where they haven't had a true king over them. And it's important to say before we read this that they're not the only nation that longs for this better king, that has this feeling that the monarchy could be better, that royalty has been distorted. Other people in other lands would feel the same thing. And that's not so different even for us in 21st century world, right? We feel, we long for those who lead us and and rule over us to be of a certain character, to be of a certain wisdom, to be of a certain power, and yet they always fall short. So we feel this longing, and that was happening all over the world, even at this time, not just in Israel. So what happens? Well, we have insight here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Actually, one page before. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So chapter 1, we have the story of the birth of the son of Mary and Joseph who had to flee from where they were living to go to their sort of place of origin. And because they were of the line of David, they went to Bethlehem, this town, because there was a census being taken by the government. And they said, return to your hometown. We want to know like how many from each sort of tribe and uh, region of origin are living in each town. So they went to Bethlehem, and this Jesus was born. So after Jesus was born, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. Rather fascinating that the king of Israel wouldn't have known this. Okay, what does it mean? He never read his Bible. Okay, so just so you know. uh, in In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. Quote, and you, Bethlehem, this is from the Old Testament, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is God speaking. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men, they brought them back in, and asked them the exact time that the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they, that's the wise men, or this is the magi in other translations, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising probably two years prior, somewhere around there, taking two years to get here, they saw that same star. It was clear, it was different. There was something different about this star. It was brighter shown in a different way. They saw it again. And they stopped above that, it had stopped above that place. 
where the child was. So when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, not to tell him, because what? His intentions were foul, as we'll see. He's jealous, as jealous can be. He's scared. He's living in fear. What if this is the Messiah? What if this is God's promised king? What if he overthrows me? God warns them of that, so they don't go back to Herod to tell him where they found the child. And so they return to their own country by another route. Probably their country was to the east in Babylon. They too realized that their royalty was distorted, imperfect, not true royalty. So they were searching the signs, the ancient text, and they had somehow come to realize about this Jewish king. And they were given supernatural insight into this star. It was saying something. And so they, to great expense of their own, risk of their own life, go on this journey to find this king. Maybe this is royalness as royalness was meant to be. And then they come to see Jesus and they realize it is. How strange. Royalness as royalness is meant to be. People living in a stable with no pomp, no circumstance except for the stars. Okay. So this is the story of royalness being seen by someone outside first of outside of the people of God. The whole world longs for this kind of king. And the magi, the wise men, they find it first. Beautiful story. And so as I sort of interpret what I love about Christmas, why, why do I love Christmas? I just started to think about all these things being tied to kind of this royalness of the person of Jesus. I mean, isn't it strange that not only in this country, not only in the Western world, but all over the entire world, talking about Thai. Thai just recently moved here from Malaysia. Lights, songs, sounds, smells about what? Christmas all over the world. This is strange. This is strange. You have to just acknowledge, this is strange. This is strange. <laughs> the whole world doing strange things centered around this birthday of this Jewish carpenter's son. It's strange, okay? Please acknowledge it's strange. And as I start to think about these things that sort of mark this season, these things that bring the most joy and anticipation and longing into my heart, I, just, I, I think these things are, in some sense, centered around this idea of royalness. I almost, I long for a coronation. Like, I never got to be a part of one. There's this energy and passion around the idea of the king coming, the coronation. So I'm going to give you six things that, that I think can be tied to the royalness of, of, of this time. A re, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a new interpretation for you of things that you just sort of absorb on sort of on one level, and then I, why is that? Is there a deeper level to why these things resonate so deeply with us? Maybe, perhaps. For me, as I've thought about it, they do. The first is this, the lights. The lights. What is a light? Light says that there's something to see here. 
There's something to see here. You're driving around. You're seeing all these lights. Why are these people putting their lights on everything? <laughs> Why is the city more lit up than it ever has been? There's something to see. There's something to see this time of year. What is it? What's the thing to see, you might ask? Now, the Magi, they also saw a great light. They thought, there's something to see there. We need to go on a journey, because there's something to see. By the way, this idea of the Magi seeing a very bright star, the brightest possible star, fits really nicely with my solar system diagram that, we <laughs> that I drew several weeks ago. So if you haven't seen that sermon, you might want to look for it online. That the brightest star, the most gravity, the truest truth, the purest light, actually hovers over and points to and illuminates the person of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that God did all this so that my diagram would really stand out. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying that. Just be very careful. This is not an elaborate plan of God to really make me feel good about my diagram. Other way around. John 1.5. Ryan preached on this last week. John 1.5. The beginning of John's biography about the life of Jesus talks about Jesus was with God because Jesus was God in the beginning before the creation of the world. And then it says, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That that's actually what's happening when Jesus is born, that God has come and put on human flesh. And then it goes on to say, John 1.5, it says this, the light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So isn't it strange that at the darkest time of the year, it's dark right now, especially in a city like Seattle with so many clouds, it's dark, that we would put up lights to say, hey, there's something happening now, even in the darkest time of the year, that the darkness cannot overcome. There's light. Isn't that interesting? Now, do you know the history of Christmas lights? I'm sure you do. I'm sure you guys study this. I studied it a little bit this week. It started in the 1600s in Germany, and people used to put candles on the trees. Why did they put candles on the trees? Well, it wasn't just to look at the candles. It was actually, because it's quite dark in 1600s <laughs> Germany, as you might imagine, they wanted to illuminate the ornaments that were on the tree. So putting ornaments on the tree, that had been around for a very long time. And then the lights helped to illuminate the ornaments. Why is that important? See, the lights aren't the thing to marvel at. I think we tend to stop there and we marvel at the lights, the shiny lights. At least that's what my kids do. I get mesmerized by the lights. But the lights are actually meant to illuminate something else. So what, you might ask a friend, do you think the lights of Christmas are illuminating? How would you answer that? What are the lights of Christmas season illuminating? Like, why are we doing it? What are they pointing to? What's there to see? What's there to think about? What's there to consider? What do the lights of Christmas illuminate? You could ask that question to a friend, to a family member. What do you think? Well, they're just pretty. Why don't we leave them up all year then? Plenty dark at midnight, year-round. Interesting thought. So then in about 1882, a friend of Thomas Edison, after he'd figured out the whole light bulb thing, said this would be a better, safer way to illuminate the ornaments of a tree. So uh, there was a problem with the candle thing burning down houses. And, and so it was pretty good that, that Edison came up with this light bulb idea. And then the first sort of lit string of electric bulbs started to be used on Christmas trees, 1882. That's not that long ago, by the way. And then in 1920, people said, wow, 
we could actually put these on our house. Things got cheaper, of course. Light bulbs began to be accessible to probably at first just the wealthy, but then more and more light bulbs became cheap until somebody like me could buy Christmas lights and put them all over my house. This year, more than any other year, I have decked my house. It's been amazing. Actually, a friend of mine just recently told me that I reminded them of Eddie from Christmas Vacation. So I'll just throw that out here. What a great, that made me feel great. <laughs> no, but that's a great story of Christmas lights gone wrong. I, for the first time, I'd always put up a little. This year, me and my six-year-old son, Grace, said, let's, let's make a show. And good thing we did. Do you guys feel like no one's putting up Christmas lights this year? Kind of strange year. So our, our block, we got it covered. We got a lot of lights up. Some of them twinkle. Got the net lights. That's a cool new invention that I didn't have when I was younger. So we got, we got lights out. Why am I putting so much lights out? Well, I feel like this is a pretty dark time. Not only the darkest time of year, not only a super rainy fall, but we just come out of a pandemic. What do we need more than ever? Lights to illuminate something that's coming. People need hope. I want people to ask me, Dave, why are you putting up Christmas lights? <laughs> what might I tell them? I'm preparing for the coming king. What? You're weird. Yes, I am. <laughs> like, I believe that the kings we have now aren't the best we can do. That we are waiting for something better. And so I put my lights up to illuminate the fact that darkness isn't winning, light's winning. So this year I spent a lot, money I didn't have, to invest in lighting up my neighborhood with hope. Now, a very interesting thing happened as I was lighting my, I had a timer so that I didn't have to remember when to turn them on and turn them off. And I could save some money because they wouldn't be on all the time. And as I'm setting my timer, I had to pick what time should I have these go off? Now you'd think like, well, most people would be in, uh, in bed and asleep by like 1 a.m., have them turn off there. So I set it at 1 a.m. And then I thought to myself, I said, wait a minute. At 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., who's out on the street? Probably those who are most affected by the darkness. They need some light, too. I don't know how much extra this will cost me, but I set that thing for 6 a.m. By that time, those who need the light of Christ most probably are no longer awake. It's just an interesting thought. You say again, Dave, you're weird. Yes, everything has meaning. Everything you do matters. Even setting the timer on your Christmas lights. Do you think about these things? Everything your hands do is a confession of what you believe. And I believe that those Christmas lights, whether they know it or not, are pointing to hope and light of something coming into the world. And so I want the people who are out at 2 and 3 and stumbling through my neighborhood to see the light. Do you think about that stuff? You should. Everything matters when we're talking about the king. So the second thing, parades. Parades. Um, you ever been to Snowflake Lane over there in Bellevue? They, they hold this great parade. Uh, we were over there the other day. Really fun little parade. But a strange thing. Why in the middle of the coldest month of the year are we outside doing a parade? Who are we parading for? Do you know what the word, where the word parade comes from? It comes from the word to prepare. What are we preparing for? That's a great question. Why are we parading? What are we parading for? Who are we preparing for? 
Who's coming behind this parade? The answer, at least in Bellevue, is money. <laughs> okay, we bring them out for the parade and then they feel like they should buy something at the stores. That's why we do it. But that's strange. At some point, we started parading for some other reason. We were preparing for something. So what's the history of parades? Uh, some people believe that there are signs that even cavemen would parade after they've gone out for a hunt. They'd come back with their, the spoils of the hunt, and they would create sort of a, a, an enthusiastic showing off of coming back into the village of everything that they had caught on the hunt. So it could go back a very long time, this idea of the returning from the hunt. Of course, military kings, generals would return, would parade back into the city after returning from a victorious battle. You never do a parade if you lost. But if you win, you return as a victorious victor by a parade. Think of the Olympics. The opening ceremony, closing ceremony. All the Olympians parade in, right? So we have these notions. What are we parading about? What are we preparing for? What battles are we winning? Every year in, at Christmas. There's something to this. Or, or is it just nonsense that we kind of like, so we keep doing it? Um, and then as I was thinking about parades, I thought there's a competitive nature to parades, right? Uh, probably you could think of kings of old sort of wanting to outdo the parades of neighboring nation kings so that they might tell stories of this great parade after their victory and I want my parade to be bigger than the other parade. You, you see this at the Olympics, right? Like every host city wants to like outdo the opening ceremony of the last. It's like the main thing people want to see like was it better than Beijing? And it never is. Beijing was always the best, probably always will be. We just can't outdo that. But you feel this sense of, I want my country to do a better opening ceremony if I'm hosting the Olympics, right? So there is sort of this, there's this competitive nature of parading in the world we live in now, right? Um, so that's, there's a root of jealousy always in the rulers of this world, and you see it in Herod. The root of jealousy is in Herod. He doesn't want this other king that's getting attention, that, that foreigners are coming to go see him, this Jesus, rather than King Herod. There's always jealousy rooted in parading, I think. If you study sort of the history of the Soviet Union, uh, you'd see the same thing. Once the regime became atheistic, they didn't like the fact that Christmas was still celebrated. So it was actually officially banned. Now, of course, people tampered down their celebrations, but still celebrated the king, Jesus. But from 1918 to actually 1981, it was outlawed to celebrate Christmas as it once was. So they changed the name, and instead of a Christmas tree, they called it a New Year's tree so that people wouldn't get too upset. But isn't that strange? That a country would feel, a huge country, would feel like they had to ban Christmas parades, ban Christmas lights. Ban what are they banning if it's just nothing? They sense there's something, and they don't want that thing to be something other than their rule, their reign. Very interesting that from 1980, or 988 AD, 988 AD, when Vladimir the Great became a Christian, Russia worshipped at this time of year King Jesus, until 1918, when they said, let's stop that. Take down the lights. Change the name of the tree. We don't want anybody anticipating the coming of another king. Very interesting. Why is that? So the parades. The third thing, the music. Well, that's a huge part of parades. The noise, the sound, 
Why are we making so much commotion to give people senses, the attention that something's happening, something to prepare for? And I love just the fact that it's at Christmas that the trumpet makes a big comeback every year, like not enough trumpeting in the world, and I'm happy at Christmas that it comes back. Why is that? Why, why do we use so many trumpets? Um, I want to read to you a couple passages. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. I think we got it thrown up here. 1 Thessalonians. Okay. We do not warn you. So this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica, okay? And he's, he's talking about this thing to come. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve like the rest. You who have, or those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What do you mean, bring with him? When, you should be asking, those who have died. What's, what's going on? Here we go. Next line. For we say this to you by, the word from the, by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not proceed. Proceed when? <laughs> in the parade. Proceed those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Next slide. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, those who have died up to this point. Next slide. Then we who are still alive, who are left on earth, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. We won't miss the parade. Those who are in Christ who have already died, those who are alive at his second coming, when his victory parade comes into town, we all get to walk in that parade, is what Thessalonians says, and there'll be lots of trumpets. <laughs> lots of trumpets. Now go to Revelation 11. Oh, by the way, it says encourage one another with those words. That's what I just did for you. Okay, <laughs> Revelations 11. The seventh angel, this is sort of a vision that God gives John, the apostle John, about the, the, end, the end of the world. He says, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's his king. And he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints and to those who fear your name, both small and great, and the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. So there's these trumpets, there's these loud noises. No, what is it? Nobody will miss it, the Bible says. It'll be so loud, you'll know it's coming. It'll be like somebody blowing a trumpet in your ear. You'll know... King Jesus has come back to take his world, to take his land, and he'll have those who trust him following along in his great parade. All the senses will be engaged, I think is when you, when you think about this day. All of them, your eyes, your ears, smell, taste, it'll all be engaged in anticipation now for the coming king and one day for his coming. It's beautiful. So what do we do at this time of year? We engage all the senses, the sight, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch, everything's engaged as we build anticipation. That's the royalness of this season because we're anticipating something royal. Then we have number four. Number four, if you're taking notes. The gifts. What are the gifts? They're honoring. 
So the Magi bring gifts. The wise men, they bring gifts and they give them. This is very common. This is what you would do when? When you're visiting a foreign dignitary, a foreign royalty. So they bring gifts because they see Jesus is royal. <laughs> baby Jesus, what a strange sight. But they sense the royalness of this baby. The dignitaries come to honor the king. So that's why we give gifts at this time of year. And there's something about the gifts of this time of year. What are they? They're strange. It's like two times in your life where you just don't seem to think about the temporality of this world or the temporality of your bank account. <laughs> like when you're on vacation, it's like, well, on vacation. <laughs> we might as well buy that. It's like you would never do that if you weren't on vacation. You do it on your vacation and you do it at Christmas. So there's this eternal mindset. Eh, it's all God's money anyhow. I know the king. He can give it back to me if he wants. So you kind of spend in this unique way at Christmas. I think that's good. You give gifts to people you never would give gifts to because you don't have the budget for it at this time of year. Why is that? You're drawn into the kingdom. You realize you're here with the king. I shouldn't be as worried about this gift giving. I'd like to give some gifts away. I'd like to show my love. The king owns it all. We'll be all right. There's a royalness to this. The gift giving is amazing. Okay, number five. The singing, the dancing, and the laughter. The singing and the dancing and the laughter. So look at verse 10 with me. Look at verse 10. What does it say in verse 10? When the Magi entered the house, or sorry, uh, when they saw the star, they were what? Overwhelmed with joy. Overwhelmed with joy. doesn't say they were joyful. It says they were overwhelmed with joy. Why, why is it translated that way into the English? It's because it's actually the passive tense of the verb. What do you mean passive tense? It doesn't mean they were joying. It means joy struck them and overwhelmed them. And that's what joy does. Joy overtakes you. Why? Because the presence of the king, his power, his victory, his perfection, his promises, it hits you like a freight train. You've never felt so secure, so happy. You've never felt so much possibility. It's something from the outside coming in. That's the coming of the king. Overwhelms you with joy. When you see a star and you realize it's pointing somewhere, you're overwhelmed by the majesty that there's somebody that owns those stars that's using one of them to spotlight a little baby. See how you're overwhelmed with joy? You know you're not alone. You know your prayers aren't going to nowhere. You know there's somebody with the power to affect the kind of goodness and royalness you feel should be in the world. So it overwhelms you. Um, in the Alpha course, we talk about this when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Like, what is the Holy Spirit? And, and it says the first time you ever experience the Holy Spirit, a common thing that you'll experience is uncontrolled laughter. And I've experienced that where you're just worshiping God and you just you'd start to laugh. And you're like, it's all true. Like, it's God's who he said he is. And he loves me. And you just start kind of laughing. You're, it's like uncontrollable. It overwhelms you. I hope you've had that experience. And why should you be so excited? Well, verse 6 tells us the promise is that there will be a ruler who will shepherd. Amazing. Not a ruler who will oppress, but a ruler who will shepherd. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd has to be near. He can't be distant, but he comes near. And a shepherd is tender, not harsh. We have a ruler, a king, who will shepherd. There's a lot to be excited about. So we sing, we dance, we laugh. It's all part of the season. I love it. What are we laughing about? What are we dancing about? Why are we singing? This is strange. Have you ever thought of that? It's almost like there's a royal party that's about to be thrown where the king picks up the tab and you just get to enjoy. The 
it's actually true. There's a king coming, he's going to throw you a party. And so we start, in part, singing, dancing, laughing now. Now, the final, six. Look at what they do, verse 11. Verse 11, part of the royalness of this whole season. Entering the house, the magi saw the child with Mary, his mother, and look what they do. Falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Falling to their knees. There's something very royal about bending your knee. Royalty deserves reverence. And when we come to this season, hopefully, you'll spend a lot of time bending your knee to Jesus. You'll bend your calendar so that you can worship him. You'll take time at your Christmas dinner to thank him via prayer. You'll bend your knee. What are you doing? You sense there's royalty, that this whole season's about the royalty of Jesus, his kingship. Somebody might ask you, well, what are you doing tonight for Christmas Eve? What are you going to say? You could say, well, I'm headed to this building where I'll bend my knee in worship and reverence to the coming king. You could say, I'm going to a Christmas Eve service, but that's not actually what you should be doing. You should be coming here to bend your knee. First thing you want to do on Christmas Eve, 4 o'clock, you want to come here, you want to bend your knee and worship the coming king. So all those weird things that we do at Christmas time, I think are all pointing to the royalty and the royalness of this season, which is all about Jesus. Well, somebody might say to you, that's silly. What do you mean you're going to a building to bend your knee to Jesus? Is he, what, is he going to be there? You're like, yeah. There's this strange thing about Advent. There's this strange thing about the royalness of this season. And theologians call it the already but not yet. There's sort of the alreadiness that Jesus has come that he is the king. Right now, he is the king. He's already come, but he's not yet fully come. He's, there's more to come. So, so it's been inaugurated with his first coming, with his death and his resurrection. He has won victory. We've heard about it. News has come back from the field. The messengers have been sent. The war is won, but Jesus has not yet returned. So it's inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. What we read about here, that's the consummation of Jesus' victory and his kingdom. It's been birthed, Jesus has been birthed, but it's slowly growing. Like more lights are going up all over the world. More, more trees, more ornaments, more gifts are being given, more songs are being sung than ever before in history. So it's been birthed. The worship of King Jesus has been birthed, and if you're honest with it, maybe you not might feel it in this country, but around the world, more and more people are beginning to bow their knee in worship of Jesus. So it's growing. The royalness of Christmas is actually growing, even if in Seattle, less people are putting up Christmas lights. It's actually growing, and the world is becoming to, to, to see that the king is coming. So Jesus says, uh, it's like a mustard seed, he says. It starts really small, and then by the end, it'll be a full-grown tree. That's what's happening. So there's sort of the undetectable. Jesus talks about there's this leaven in the flour. That's his first coming. But it's being transformed. It's coming from the inside, now it's coming out until the whole dough, the whole batch is new bread. That's happening. Slowly but surely, the world is coming alight. The darkness is being pushed back. And you see that at Christmas. It's wonderful. That's a royalness of Christmas. As all over the world, people are doing these things to remember this particular birthday. What a strange thing. So we're tasting 
we're living partly now in this kingdom, into this eternal life, while we're still patiently waiting the fullness of eternal life and the kingdom of Christ and God to come in full. That's the already and the not yet. Jesus has already risen from the dead. Already. It's been proven that this isn't the only life you'll live, that there's more life to come. The Holy Spirit has now been sent and is indwelling those. We've had that experience of joy that overwhelms us. We have been sort of, you could say, we've experienced already resurrection of our dead hearts or our dying hearts, but we must wait for the full resurrection of our bodies, a resurrection like Jesus' body. So our bodies are dying, but they will come alive. So it's already not yet. So what does this all mean? The lights, the sounds, the parades, the smells, the food, the gifts, the dancing, the singing, the laughter, they've already started. It's already happening. The royalness, is, the coronation is already happening. That's what's going on at Christmas. It's already happening. It's already here. The king is already here. But the king is still coming. There will be more lights, more parades, more sounds, more gifts, more food, more dancing, more laughing, more singing. There's more to come. So that's the already, net, already but not yetness of the royalness we experience. You could say it like this, and I said it like this this week. You, with everything you do in this season, are shouting out, The King is coming! That's what you're shouting. And you're shouting, And the King is here! Both. The King is coming! And the King is here! Both are happening this time of year. That's the thing I feel. That's something happening. What is it? The king is coming. Get ready. And the king is here. You can worship him now. You can know him now. You can bend your knee now. Both are happening. That's what we're shouting. Why do you put the lights on your house, Dave? Because the king is coming. The king is here. Dave, why are you going to the parades? Because it's for the king, whether people know why they're trumpeting or not. He's coming, and he's here. You see that? Why all the great food? Why all the gifts? Why all the dancing and the singing? Because the king is coming. It's going to be okay. He's good. He's not like all the other kings. He gave himself up and died for us. And he's already here. You can know him now. You can experience the joy and laughter of his indwelling Holy Spirit. That's why I do it. Is that why you do it? So you might have a friend, a coworker, a family member that comes to your house, maybe sees your decorations, experiences your food, and they might say to you, well, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? You know what you say to them? It's royal. Let's pray.